0: Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jan-Marco Muller, who is the Science and Technology Advisor to the European External Action Service. Uh, That's a position that was created about six months ago. In previous roles, he's also assisted the Director General of the European Commission's Joint Research Centre, run the Office of the Chief Scientific Advisor to the President of the Commission, and helped to design the EU's scientific advice mechanism. So, Jan, thanks for being here. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Yes. Hi, Toby. Pleasure to meet you.
0: You too. Um, Okay, so I think bearing in mind that we have an international audience uh, with a lot of listeners beyond just Europe, it's probably a good idea to start our conversation right at the beginning. So before we get into the details of what your job is uh, at the European External Action Service, perhaps we could just spend a minute or two discussing what the service itself is and what it does.
1: Yes, well, the European External Action Service, in short EAS, is the diplomatic service of the European Union. So, we coordinate foreign and security policies, we run delegations around the world. It's in a way, to some extent, similar to a Ministry of Foreign Affairs in a, in, in a country, but obviously um, with a little bit different set of tasks at the European level. It is quite interesting to know that the European External Action Service, in a way, is... Somewhere in between the European Commission and the Council, uh, it has staff from European Commission, it has staff that is seconded from the member states of the EU. And this setup is uh, due to the fact that obviously foreign and security policies are to some extent sensitive policies for, for countries where countries are reluctant to, to give away powers to, to some other entity. And and that's why this setup was chosen and obviously also the high representative for foreign and security policy, Mr. Borrell, he's at the same time a vice president of the European Commission. So he has has these two hats. And what you also should know is that the E.S. is a very young organization. I think except for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of South Sudan, it's the youngest diplomatic service there is on the planet. And being young has a disadvantage and it has an advantage. The disadvantages, of course, you don't have all this gravitas and legacy of a Ministry of Foreign Affairs that has been around for 100 years. And, and obviously, EAS doesn't sound as sexy as Care or something like that. And we don't have nice airplanes that say in big letters European Union on it. Um, but being young also has a big advantage. And the advantage is there's nobody telling you we have always done it like this. There's room for experimentation and for evolving the organization as it is real, still at a very young age.
0: Yeah, that does sound interesting, although I'm sorry to hear about the aeroplane. Maybe it's time to, to start a petition about that. Um, so EU foreign policy, from the outside, it certainly looks like it's mostly run by, the, by individual countries, by member states. If that impression is right, then what exactly is left for the EEAS to do?
1: Well, I mean, the key issue here is, of course, to coordinate the member states and to get to a common voice. Of course, all member states, they have their specific national interests, which they exercise through their ministries of foreign affairs. But we all know if we want to be heard at a global level, we need to work together. And that's what we do at the ES to have a joint strategy on how we approach um, international affairs that we coordinate, how we approach conflicts, for instance, around the planet and really get a common approach across the EU where we act together.
0: I see. And you mentioned it's like an EU diplomatic service, but but also like a foreign ministry. And those are different things. So I wonder where the emphasis lies for the EEAS. For instance, do you actually help to shape the EU's external policy like a foreign ministry might do? Um, Or is it more about representing the EU abroad? Or indeed, is it just an internal coordination job like a network?
1: Um, In a way, it's difficult to answer. It it depends, obviously. I mean, uh, because, for instance, uh, the EU, in many international organizations, we are not a member. It's member states who are members, and we have kind of an observer status, for instance. Just take the UN Security Council, for instance, where there's countries that are on the Security Council. So that's an issue where then member states kind of exercise the, the voice for the EU. But on the other side, of course, there are other instances where actually we as the EU, as the External Action Service, we define together with the member states a strategy. And then we implement and coordinate the strategy globally.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Which brings us then to the obvious question. Why does a diplomatic service or a foreign ministry or whatever we're calling the EAS, why does it need a science advisor? Um,
1: Well, as we all know, um, the world is more getting interconnected. So we have very systemic global challenges, and they all relate in one way or the other to science and technology. Take climate change, take digitalization, and obviously the pandemic, COVID-19. And uh, obviously, um, my job is a very recent one. It was created six months ago, as you mentioned at the beginning. And um, this obviously stems from the insight that if you want to manage a pandemic, it's not enough to talk to foreign and security policy think tanks. Well, actually you need to talk to science academies, to research institutes, um, to all sorts of disciplines across the sciences, both natural sciences and humanities. And this is a voice which is absolutely vital if you want to come up with solutions. So just take for instance, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a lot of talk around the issue of vaccine diplomacy, yeah. and uh, obviously uh, other countries acting there. We see the whole issue around vaccine sharing and how to distribute vaccines globally. Yes, of course, this is a very political issue and geopolitical issue. But at the same time, you need a fundamental understanding of what these vaccines are, how they differ, what kind of logistical requirements do they have, how is the the whole production process going. And these are insights that can be provided by a science advisor.
0: I see. So it sounds in a way analogous to being a government science advisor. So like I have in mind um, the quintessential idea of a senior scientist who's called on by ministers or whoever, to answer questions about science or to make policy recommendations based on their expertise. It sounds to me like y- your role is not really that, or certainly not only that. So can you sketch out the differences between that classic model and and what you do?
1: Yeah, I think it could certainly be compared to a science advisor you would have in a, in a government ministry, for instance. Uh, I guess the job description is very similar. So. Obviously, what I do is I provide scientific advice on all sorts of issues. I'm the kind of the, the helpful person, the help desk, so to speak, whenever somebody either in the headquarters or in the delegation has a question around the scientific issue. But I also um, obviously am advising on more foresight-related issues, kind of looking what's, what's out there on the horizon that may hit us at some point later on. Um, but then, of course, I'm also in this particular role also championing what you would call science diplomacy, which is more than just science advice, but also, I mean, in a more general sense, the, the um, how are we going to use science um to achieve foreign policy objectives, for instance, how are we going to capitalize on all the research spending we do, we do abroad? So there are many issues around this, uh, around the issue of, of the use of science technology in foreign and security policies.
0: Hmm. I definitely want to come back to science diplomacy because that's something um, we haven't really explored very much on this podcast, and it's also a bit of a, a trigger phrase for me, uh, which I'll uh, I'll explain what I mean. But before we go off in that direction, let's keep the focus for now on your role. Put it in concrete terms for me. What's your day job like? What kind of issues do you deal with
1: day to day? It can be all sorts of issues. Obviously, there's the usual kind of bread and butter work of providing briefings, writing notes and this sort of things. In my particular job, I'm also dealing with everything that relates to DG Research and Innovation and the Joint Research Center both in the European Commission. So whenever something comes from them, for instance, a draft policy paper um, that needs input from the external action service, then I'm going to coordinate this input. Then, of course, I'm I'm advising also on a more personal level, talking to people beyond just the, the written part, so to speak. And when I started, I thought, okay, I need, as this is a new position, I need some kind of a flagship project, something where I can show that actually it's useful to have a science advisor. And uh, you, you will remember mid-August, kind of 10 days or so after my start, that was when Russia announced, hey, we have the first vaccine against COVID-19,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, which they announced just before entering the third phase of clinical trial. So after having tested the vaccine for on 100 people or something like that. So I thought, okay, that's a good moment to explain to the diplomats how this vaccine business works. I mean, what kind of vaccines do we have? What are clinical trials? How are they organized? How credible is this statement, etc.? But then, of course, I also tried already to go the step further, just not provide facts, but put it into context, adding a geopolitical assessment. So, what does it mean when we have different vaccines coming out at different points in time from different countries? And of course, that's where all the politics come in. And that's what makes the scientific facts then actually useful and interesting for the diplomats because they can use them in in their daily work. So that was one of kind of my the, the first projects which I did. And uh, three months later or so, then the yes decided to establish a vaccine task force, of which I'm the member. Where I'm the scientific voice, um, providing the what's happening in the in the scientific community.
0: What's your uh, academic background? You're not a public health specialist, right?
1: No, I'm, I'm a humble geographer. I have a PhD uh-huh. in geography, um, which actually is very useful for my job. Well, not, not obviously, because it's, it helps when you know other countries, when you work in a diplomatic service. But obviously, as a geographer, I'm both a natural scientist and a social scientist. So I can talk to both worlds and can engage with different disciplines. And that's extremely useful for the job.
0: Well, it sounds like you need or one would need a very broad skill set to do this job. So we've talked a fair bit on this podcast about the need for scientists to understand the world of politics as well as their own field. And that's clearly true here. But then in your case, we're adding not only science, not only EU politics, but also global geopolitics. And for you to be thrown in on the first week advising on the geopolitical implications of Russia's new vaccine announcement... Uh, well, that, I mean, that's certainly hitting the ground running, to put it mildly.
1: <laughs> absolutely, yes. <laughs> that's certainly true. I mean, obviously, what's uh, absolutely vital in this job that you are ahead of the curve, So which means every week I need to read Science, Nature, Lancet, and all these journals to know what's going on in the scientific world. But at the same time, I need to read the stuff the diplomats are reading. So so input that comes from these foreign and security policy think tanks. Um, Obviously, the the cables that come from the delegations. and, and, And I really need to sense what's on their table, what's on their mind. And then, of course, when you come as a scientist into such an environment, you need to understand how this organization ticks, what's the jargon, the slang they use. You know, So, what is a démarche? I, that's, of course, a common word to diplomats, but a scientist probably doesn't know what it is. I,
0: fill me in. What's a démarche?
1: <laughs> a démarche is a, is, is a line of action, an initiative. So, you can give a démarche to a delegation or to an embassy at a national level, um, and that's kind of, kind of an instruction for them to do something. Um, this kind of words, and of course, then all the acronyms they're using. So that's something where I had to hit the ground running. And it was a steep learning curve. But in the meantime, I think I navigate very well this environment.
0: Yeah, I can well imagine. It's interesting because, so you describe, as it were, your clients as both the internal stuff of the EAS, when they need science advice, and also diplomats. And the internal side, I can, I can fully appreciate the value immediately. But I'm interested in how much influence science has, so therefore how much influence you have, I suppose, with the diplomatic crowd. Because foreign policy seems to me to be an area where governments quite jealously guard their personal control. So I mean, not just at national level where you, where you usually see foreign policy as like an exclusively executive competence, but also even more so in the EU where member states are really strongly in the driving seat and other institutions have much less input. So foreign policy is arguably one of the most politically sensitive and indeed most politicized areas of policy with many different interests competing. In which case, my question is, in that environment, how much appetite do you feel there is from the people who do that work, from diplomats, for scientific input? Um, I'm asking both if people do seek your advice and also having sought it when you provide it, Do these people then have the political room for maneuver to take it
1: on board? Um, I must say, since I started, wherever I went, I met only open doors. There is a huge interest in science and technology because, of course, the diplomats themselves, they also struggle in understanding what's happening around us in the world. And we help them to understand it. So that's, that's very important. Of, of course, there are also the voices that say, mm, science diplomacy, uh, that's yet another diplomacy. We have already water diplomacy and climate diplomacy, and it will cost money. And, and these usual kind of arguments, then you will also hear from from time to time. But but generally speaking, I must say, um, everybody has been welcoming me. And many, in the meantime, are proactively approaching me. Yeah, so they're asking me, okay, you would you have some... some insights about this or can you provide me a fact on that? And um, of course, one of the challenges here is there are only 10 or so delegations that have a science attaché at your level. We call them research and innovation counsellors, And the situation isn't any different in member states. Only a couple of embassies will have science attachés. And of course, that's that's in a way a challenge. It's also kind of a changing role for a science attaché. Whereas in the in the past, perhaps they were kind of promoting research programs, etc., and and helping with international cooperation in science. But of course, increasingly they also become some sort of science advisors to the heads of delegations or the ambassadors at the national level. Um, so I think it's it's one area where I think we really need to rethink. Going into the future, kind of what what role for science and technology in representations around the world, and 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 how actually to make this work. And uh, for the for the moment, I must say there are many around the world that are approaching me for 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 input. So so I think it's uh, it's a really very open dialogue.
0: Yeah, well that's good to hear. And I mean, uh, uh, an open door is half the battle. But also, what about the output at the other end? Can you put your finger on times when? your advice has made a difference to the end result.
1: Um, yes, one, one should add here that uh, my role is positioned in what's called the Strategic Policy Planning Division, which is directly attached to the Secretary General of the AS, which on one hand is the advantage that I can really work cross-cutting horizontally and approach all the different directorates across the AS, but I'm also very close to the policy-making machinery and to the cabinet of the High Representative. And one of the advantages here is that I'm uh, involved in commenting on policy proposals. And I can give you one example. In January, there was a commission communication around COVID 19. And uh, I received a draft for comment. um, And it was approved on a Tuesday. And I received the, the final draft on the Sunday at 23.37
0: <laughs> with
1: a request to comment by nine o'clock in the morning on the Monday. So basically, I had between midnight and nine o'clock in the morning to read the paper with the eyes of a scientist and to just check, is this scientifically sound? And there were a few comments I made and one of them, there was a sentence around vaccination certificates kind of saying, yeah, once we have vaccination certificates, you can travel and You know, can relax measures, etc. And I said, be careful because at the moment, we don't know yet whether actually somebody who is vaccinated may still spread the disease. So there's evidence still missing. So it would be too premature at this stage to write such a sentence. And I've suggested to delete the sentence. Okay. One day later, the policy was approved and actually the sentence had been rephrased in a way that it is scientifically correct. And this, of course, gives me a lot of satisfaction and a job when you see, actually, I was a scientist at the very, very last stage of the process. Actually, hours before the, the paper was put on the table of the policymakers, I was still able to, to really put it in a way that it is scientifically 100% correct. And that's really rewarding.
0: Well, I'm sure there's a lot of science advisors who would find that opportunity very exciting, um, but it doesn't necessarily feature in their day jobs. And I don't just mean the importance of the topic you know, I'm sure there's an ongoing conversation among people who study and work in science advice about the appropriate point or points in the policymaking process when scientific input should be incorporated. But to be able to have your say on the final draft at the last minute, like literally hours before it goes live, is something I think many government advisors would give their right arms for.
1: Of course. I mean, one should say here that... Uh, of course, there has been a lot of science going into the paper already in the previous stages, because there are all sorts of science advisory your bodies. But still, it's good if at the very last step, you still have somebody with a scientific background who can do a last sanity check, so to speak. Is it really correct? But there's, of course, one challenge here is that when you receive it at midnight and have until nine o'clock in the morning to comment, it isn't a time we can still call up an academy president or the top epidemiologist to get his or her point of view. So that's why I just need to rely on my own expert judgment to spot, okay, here's something that doesn't sound 100% correct. And then I obviously need to fact check this uh, uh, going into a scientific journal or whatever it is.
0: Right. Often the job of a science advisor is to be the point of contact between the policymaker and another scientist who ever can advise on the issue at hand, Um, which means it's not vital that the advisor is themselves an expert in every area. They're more like a a matchmaker or a term that's usually used is broker.
1: Is that part of your job too? Um, Of course, yes. I I also engage with uh, the scientific community in in a broader sense and put people into touch, Um, especially considering, of course, that, I'm uh, seconded into this position from the European Commission's Joint Research Center. And the Joint Research Center, as you know, is the, the Science and Knowledge Service of the Commission. So they provide evidence and facts for all sorts of, of uh, EU policies. Uh, so what I often do is then uh, to put diplomats or desk officers in our political directorates in touch with scientists at JRC, where I know they have been working on this and they should talk to each other. Equally, um, last year in December, I was uh, part of organizing an expert dialogue on COVID-19 with the ASEAN countries. And there then I I reached out, for instance, to to Peter Piot, who is uh, President von der Leyen's COVID-19 advisor, to get him on board as as an expert to speak and in the same way, I'm of course engaging also with with other bodies like the group of chief science advisors, or SAPIA, for instance, the, the science advice by the academies. Um, so so of course that's an important part of the job. And to to do, of course, it's very important that you are that you are interdisciplinary thinker and are able to engage with all these people.
0: Yeah, and and well connected, you know who to call.
1: Uh, certainly, this helps. Yes.
0: <laughs> and. Uh- You mentioned that you were seconded to the EES from the Joint Research Centre. Why? I mean, why why does the JRC have an interest in having a a plant in the external action service, for want of a better phrase?
1: (laughs) Well, JRC is underpinning European policies and works with all the different directors general of the European Commission. And of course, they also have always worked with the EES Uh, in all sorts of issues from, you know, supporting the the Kimberley process on blood diamonds to monitoring piracy of Somalia and this sort of things. Um, And, of course, also the the nuclear issues, which are, of course, always very sensitive. But they came to the conclusion that actually there's much more they could do, that we should develop this relationship also between the main science body, uh, science evidence body of the commission and the AAS, because actually they do much more that would be relevant for us. Because JSE is, of course, an international research center and they work around the world and they produce many useful products, which maybe they be producing for another part of the commission, but that may be interest for us, us as well. So the idea is really that I can also see inside the AS, okay, here's an issue. Somebody would really benefit from talking to a colleague from JSE and uh, kind of have an in-house evidence base, because that's one of the advantages of JSC. Of course, they are part of the family, so it can also share sensitive or confidential files with them.
0: All right, then. So I, I really appreciate the view you've offered onto science advice in this different kind of context from the standard. But I don't think we can put off any longer the discussion which I mentioned at the start that I wanted to get to, which is science diplomacy. So I have to confess that I've always found this concept a bit... Uh, puzzling, the actual meaning of the phrase science diplomacy. I mean, it's not just that different people seem to mean different things by the phrase, although that's certainly true, but it's also that they seem to mean these different things sometimes in the same context and apparently without noticing the differences. And also, I think the various different meanings of the term science diplomacy seem so different to me that I'm not really sure why they share a common term. Anyway, enough of my confusion. Perhaps you could shed some light on the whole concept of science diplomacy for me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, of course. Um, I mean, everybody who has been dealing in one way or the other with science diplomacy comes across this this famous three-stand definition, which is already 10 years old, but still being used. Yes. Um, which kind of has these three pillars of uh, diplomacy for science, which is when diplomats help the scientists, for instance, to set up an international infrastructure or something like that. We have the science for diplomacy, which is, you know, using science to achieve foreign policy objectives, you know, using science as bridge pillars between nations and science in diplomacy, which is the kind of very practical, pragmatic science advice to foreign policy makers. I'm I certainly in my current role, much more in this last pillar on actually the providing the science advice, although I'm also looking into you know how can we use more strategically science in, in, a, in a broader sense. What I found perhaps a little bit a problem, let's say, is that science diplomacy has always been very supply-side driven. So you have the science ministries, the science advisors, the science institutions all talking about the great good of of science and how we can help the diplomats and so on. But there's still a lack on the demand side. Actually, diplomats approaching the scientists and demanding uh, solutions. Yeah, so you can go to any science diplomacy conference, and and the science will probably outnumber the diplomats by a number of ten. So that's that's something where I want to put my focus on, in actually generating this demand, and this is about really raising the appetite for science in the diplomatic service. And and one very practical things to do it just just to give you an example, our division has always been in the past providing what we call a reader's digest. So a kind of weekly newsletter with interesting stuff the diplomats should read. And in the past, this has been, you know, interesting articles from major newspapers or or, uh, think tanks or something like that. And now I make sure that regularly in these newsletters, you find also articles from science or from nature or from other journals, which of course, those that are kind of understandable and to lay people, so to speak, who are not too technical, but still who kind of provide a perspective from, from the science side. And, and this way kind of slowly get the diplomats used to reading such articles and actually to ask questions. And I hope that by this also, and, and of course, strengthening also going into the future, um, training, for instance, for diplomats and, and making sure science is on the menu, so to speak, that we actually make diplomats ask questions to science. And, and I think that's, that's one of the key roles in my job, I think.
0: Great. Okay, so building demand as well as supply. Um, What else do you have in mind for the future of science diplomacy, the next five or ten years, say?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, first one should say, of course, there is a whole science diplomacy community out there that has developed over the past years. And it has developed very well. So the European Commission put a lot of emphasis on it and has funded three major projects through the Horizon 2020 program, um, which really advanced our knowledge about science diplomacy, the methodologies, and also produced all sorts of training material, etc. And we also increasingly see now also in member states science diplomacy strategies coming. And as I said, there's a whole scholarship around it that that has developed. So I think that's a, a very good sign. But going into the future... As I said, it has been very much dominated by the science side, and we really need to get the foreign ministries and the diplomatic services much more active in this. So I see, in a way, kind of four priorities. One is, of course, what we just mentioned. So the issue of training, of raising the scientific literacy, so to speak, in in the diplomatic services. That's definitely the one area where we have seen already development, but I think which we need to kind of mainstream and really institutionalize also in in diplomatic schools and so on. Then there's the issue around reviewing how are we procuring scientific evidence in diplomatic services? So is our evidence base broad enough? Is our stakeholder base diverse enough? And what are the processes to ensure that the scientific advice is robust? I think that's an area... Uh, The third area is, of course, the issue around using science more strategically to achieve foreign and security policy goals. Um, Of course, you see all these uh, stories, you know, that European scientists work with Iranian scientists and we have these international organizations where um, scientists from all over the world come together. But that actually needs to be linked to real foreign policy goals. So what do we want to achieve as European Union internationally? And here, if you think of the crisis of multilateralism, which we have seen in last years, and the need to reform uh, international organizations such as the WHO or the WTO, I think we're going to need a lot of scientific input. And and perhaps finally is the issue around what we call public diplomacy. It's the outreach to the public and, and showing actually the the advantage of of using science and foreign policy in a a very concrete terms and also capitalizing on all the investments we do in in research and innovation around the world.
0: How how might that be done, that last category?
1: Oh, in the last category, yeah. I mean, uh, for instance, I mean, we have all these network of alumni of uh, European programs like the Marie Curie program. We have uh, all sorts of European scientists living in a diaspora. So, in a way, they are, of course, ambassadors for European science. Uh, and when you have somebody who is employed in whatever it is in China and the United States, of course, they work also with, with European partners and they can help us in, in kind of conveying, say, uh, the message of how we approach science, uh, the values we have in the European Union. And I think we should much, much more capitalise really on, on all the people that can help us.
0: Mm. And you've reminded me of something I read on Twitter, if not on your Twitter feed, and someone else's, um, about a network of foreign ministry science advisors that you're creating. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, um, when I started at the European External Action Service, um, I thought, okay, is there somebody like me in member state foreign ministries? Because um, I wasn't aware of any network of them or I didn't even have any phone numbers or anything. So I approached the different ministries and asked, who is the who is the voice of science in your ministry? And of course, setups are very different. So in some cases, you have actually a chief science officer like in the Netherlands in a foreign ministry. But then you have others. The Czech Republic has a special envoy for science diplomacy. The Slovaks have an, an ambassador at large for science and innovation. Or in other ministries, you have you know, there's science diplomacy people embedded into cultural diplomacy or like me sitting in a policy planning department. Um, so actually, I kind of gathered this group when we had a first, first meeting and it's still growing, it's still a growing network. And what I made very clear to them from the start, I don't want you to represent your countries. I see these rather as a community of practitioners where we can help each other, where we can share experiences, where we can share insights or or papers or just have a contact in the other country when there is an an emergency or some issue that you need to solve. You you know the the famous single number to dial uh, if you want to talk to the one speaking about science in a foreign ministry. And so that's the background of the network. So it's just started, it's just evolving and and, uh, everybody is saying, Great that we finally have such a network at the European level.
0: Yeah. And these people are mostly scientists, I guess?
1: Uh, It's a mix, actually. Yes, there are some uh, doctors or even professors um, who may also even still be teaching part-time at universities. And in other cases, it's actually career diplomats who came to the role either because out of personal interest or because they have been dealing with, you know, international climate negotiations or whatever. Um, So it's really a very mixed uh, breed of people. But what unites them is that all of us, we want to stand up for science in the foreign ministries.
0: Yeah. A final question, maybe. Do you think that your position of a science advisor in the EEAS is meant to be a permanent one? Will this role stick around in the future? Or given what you've said about the developments you're working on, will there eventually be a better model?
1: Um, Well, we will see. I mean, as I said, it was uh, created just six months ago. Um, As I said, I'm seconded uh, from the Joint Research Center. Usually such a secondment is for a year, which has technical reasons. It may be extended into the future. And of course, I I do hope that the European External Action Service by now sees the advantages of having a science and technology advisor. And and actually, I'm very encouraged by the feedback I'm getting. The other day, I had a, a talk with one of the managing directors the external action service, and she said she found my messages always very refreshing because they differ from the usual (laughs) messages she's getting from other parts (laughs) of the organization. Um, um, So, and it's, of course, uh, important to have this different view. Of course, I know as a scientist, I'm not the only one providing input here. Actually, what was quite funny that the first day I came to the external action service I noticed they have put the office of the science advisor next to the office of the advisor for faith and religious affairs. So I thought, well, that's going to be interesting. (laughs) But of course, thinking about this, I mean, you need, you need both views, both, both of course uh, influence, obviously how people think about international relations. So I, I see this really as a, as enriching. And I must say also the, the top management is very supportive. I mean, if you, take the, the high representative, uh, Josep Borrell. He formerly was a president of the European University Institute. So he also knows very well how the world of academia works and, and, and cherishes this input.
0: Yeah, makes perfect sense. Thank you. Well, Jan, Müller, I hope you uh, continue to carry the refreshing message of science wherever you go. And thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation. It's been great.
1: Yes, yeah, thank you very much for your interest. I must say it's a very exciting adventure. And perhaps we can catch up again at some point uh, to see, okay, what I learned (laughs) in the the months that are ahead of us. And it's really never getting boring in this job.
0: Yep, that will be interesting. I'm sure this won't be our last conversation. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by CEPAEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the Group of Chief Scientific Advisors. CERPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 Programme for Research and Innovation and you can find lots more information about us and our work at CERPEA.info Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.